Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Jehocraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue to reflect into the richness of the text, where we continue to reflect into the book of Revelation, verse by verse. I was online this morning going back into some of our programming on the book of Revelation, and I tallied 50 programs. We have been at this, my friends, for 50 programs, verse by verse, sometimes spending 10, 15 minutes on one verse, if not a whole program on one verse, and sometimes spending 10, 15 minutes on six verses. While we prepare, um, certainly we at the same time invoke the presence of the Holy Spirit to be with us, to lead our, our discussion, to lead our treatment of the book Revelation. And by the grace of God go I, by the grace of God go all of us, huh? Now, as I just mentioned, the word prepare, I got a question out from my treatment the other day as it relates to Lexio Divina. And the question was, is Lexio Divina your principal means of preparing for each radio program? And I will tell you this, it is certainly an important part of it. But something I didn't get into the other day, and I really should have, is when you do Lexio Divina, it might help you to have a commentary on your side. You know that I have been drawing a great deal from Michael Barber's work coming soon, uh, Peter Williamson's commentary on the book of Revelation, as well as a little from Scott Hahn. It's important to be able to pray with the text. And if you have a question about maybe something the Holy Spirit puts onto your heart, that question might get answered with a commentary of some sort. Now, I know in the question that was given to me, there was another aspect to the question, and that is, how much should I prepare? Well, as it relates to you, the listener, you should be praying with the text too, right? That is so important that what you are getting out of the book Revelation just isn't me giving commentary to the book Revelation or me quoting some other author as much as it is something that is complementary to what you are already doing. In that sense, it becomes not so much a monologue but a very real dialogue. Now, I know this is radio and we can't carry on in a very concrete conversation, but nonetheless, one can have a quasi-dialogue if you have already read the text and got a sense of what the text is all about. Now, I talked about this uh, at the beginning of our study on the book of Revelation, but I really do want to reinforce that, even if we have just a week left, because, well, it's a week, and as we will wrap up chapter 21 this evening, and we'll be in chapter 22 next week, there are some very important verses. And I might encourage you to go back and to reread what we've already talked about, so that maybe if you want to listen to another program, um, you do so in such a way where it does create that quasi-dialogue. We have to remember something, my friends. All of us, and I don't care if there are letters next to your name or not, all of us are called to feverishly study sacred scripture. I get from so many people that, oh, Joe, it's so dark out there. Oh, Joe, I've lost my sense of peace. I get it. I get it. But the first question I will always ask is, are you praying? Are you reading scripture? And often the response is, well, not consistently. 
And let me say, I'm, I'm not accusing anyone out there. Certainly, I fail in, in not praying enough and, and not reading Scripture enough. I, I really challenge myself in, in what I'm saying right now because we will lose our sense of peace. We will lose our sense of what it means to be a light in the darkness if we are not praying, if we are not reading sacred Scripture, if we are not entering into this practice, as I talked about it the other day, of Lexio Divina, that prayerful reading where you contemplate the deeper meaning of the text. So I want to encourage all of you out there to not only prayerfully read sacred scripture, but do so with an understanding that it's going to lift your spirit. It is going to give you an extra kick in your step. It's going to give you peace. It's going to give you joy. It's going to give you a deeper sense of what God is calling you to do. My dear friends, there are so many opportunities of evangelization and catechesis that we miss out on every day because we are not soaking ourselves in sacred scripture. We are not soaking ourselves in prayer. We are not going to God as God calls us to go to him, which is what? What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17? Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. So we must remember that even what we do here is a prayer. We not only pray the Our Father as we open up, but our words by the grace of God are words of prayer. And they might not always be perfect words, but if we come in the grace of God, if we come calling upon the Holy Spirit to be with us, calling upon the Holy Spirit to reveal himself to us as he does so beautifully in sacred scripture, certainly this is something that we can call prayer and ultimately conversation with him as he beckons us to him. Okay, with all of that, (laughs) six, seven minutes in, let us open up our Bibles and turn to chapter 21. We will pick up with verse 12, and I'll go ahead and read verses 12 to 14. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. There it is again, my friends. Jesus Christ as the King of kings, as the Prince of peace, as the one who has ransomed us from sin. No, all of those are important and true. But for John in this book, as the Lamb of God the Lamb of God that we have talked about so much. Okay, so what do we have going on here? Well, just from those three verses, we can see how the city is perfectly symmetrical with three gates on each of its four sides. This is much like Ezekiel's vision of the restored city, which has three gates on each of its four sides. Obviously, the total number of gates, 12, is symbolically significant. As in Ezekiel's vision, each of the 12 tribes' names is written on these gates. If you were to go to Ezekiel chapter 48, verses 31 to 34, we read of this very thing. And what's important for us here, my friends, is that it is right that Israel is described as a gate because it is through God's promises to them huh, that the whole world enters into his covenant family. Now, the foundations for the walls of the city have the names of the 12 apostles on them, signifying what? What do you think about when you hear of the apostles, the 12 apostles, but the church that Christ built? 
the apostolic church. This, of course, is an image borrowed from Jesus himself who made Peter the foundation rock upon which the church is built. We'll talk about that in a bit. Likewise, Paul explains that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That is a rich verse that, again, we will talk about um, extensively. So the close connection here between the 12 apostles and 12 tribes underscores what? But the continuity of God's plan, the continuity of the old and new, the continuity between promise and fulfillment, the continuity of covenant life in and with God. So the church does not replace Israel. Rather, she is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises to the chosen people. In fact, and I love this line here from Michael Barber, Jesus picked 12 apostles painting his mission with the colors of Old Testament hopes. This is especially clear from Jesus' promise that the apostles would, what do we read in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28? That the apostles would sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Paula Fredrickson, a Jewish scholar at Yale, made this very interesting observation. If Jesus indeed taught that ultimately these 12 would judge the 12 tribes, then he was thinking eschatologically. Again, eschatologically is a word that speaks to the end times. Judgment. Paula Fredrickson goes on. To assemble the 12 tribes so many centuries after the Assyrian conquest would take a miracle. But that, I think, is what Jesus was expecting. In other words, since 10 twelfths of Israel were still in exile, the 12 in of themselves represented the hope for the restoration of Israel. Huh? Now, about that verse from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul explains that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, I want to go back to that verse and reflect with this a little bit. If you want to flip your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and I will go ahead and start with verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And here's verse 20. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built into it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So now, what is going on with this word, cornerstone? Most commentaries will tell you that to speak of the cornerstone is to speak of the first stone set in place when beginning construction on a new building. In this case, of course, a temple. The cornerstone, my friends, served as the square to, to line up the rest of the structure and was part of the foundation at the base of the edifice. Uh, the honored position of the cornerstone is a fitting description, certainly, of Christ's role as the immovable foundation of the church. Be assured, my friends, cornerstone is most appropriate here because cornerstones are generally foundation stones in Semitic architecture. Uh, the term used in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, 
is found elsewhere, but only in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16 in the Greek Old Testament. In Jewish tradition, this stone was always interpreted um, and to be understood as a symbol of the messianic king of Israel. Now, what does this have to do with the church? Well, I want to go back to Matthew 16, uh, verse 18. We have talked about Peter and, and the keys and the church on at least two other occasions, but I want to focus in on the word stone. In the light of what happens in the discourse in Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. Now again, I'm not going to get into all the nuances of those verses, because I just want to focus on the name Peter. Where does the name Peter come from? Peter comes from the Greek Petros. It is a masculine noun meaning rock or stone. Okay, now you know I went back to Ephesians 2 verse 20, huh? You can probably already appreciate how this accentuates the symbolism of the name. Simon is himself the rock upon which Jesus builds the church. As we know, further New Testament evidence suggests that Jesus' words to Peter were originally spoken in Aramaic. In this language, the word kepha is the equivalent of Peter and denotes a sizable rock, one suitable as a building foundation. So what is going on here? Jesus designates Peter the foundation stone of the new covenant church. Just as the temples of the Old Testament were built upon a great stone, so Jesus builds his New Testament church upon the foundational rock of Peter. What did he say? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. You are the new foundation stone. And on this rock and on this cornerstone, I will build my church. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. We stopped there to reflect on the importance of cornerstone because when I was going back through some of my old programming, I realized I've it failed to speak to that, and I do think it's quite important when you start getting into the deeper understanding of what we ought to understand in light of the inspired text. All right, all that being said, let us get back into chapter 21, and I will go ahead and read verses 15 to 16. And he who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square its length the same as its breadth. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and breadth and height are equal. So once again, the image of measuring is drawn from Ezekiel's vision. Have we not been drawing from the prophet Ezekiel? Have we not been drawing from the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel? Why have we been drawing from them so much? Well, think about what we were just talking about. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel were talking about the restoration of the Old Testament church, the kahal, right? The assembly of believers, the people of God. Well, under the new 12, God is establishing his new church, his new kahal, his new ecclesia, his new church, his new assembly of believers. Now, as you can well imagine, (laughs) the number 12 continues to figure quite prominently as all the measurements are multiples of 12. However, the most profound truth in all of what we are talking about right now is found in John's description of the city itself. John learns once the measuring is complete that the city is built as a perfect cube. In this, the city is like the Holy of Holies, the sacred inner room of the temple, which was also a perfect cube as it was described in 1 Kings 6.20. The new Jerusalem, therefore, is one giant temple. And not only is it a temple, but all who dwell within it live in the most sacred presence of God. Consider what we just read from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that we are actually hewn into the cornerstone, into the foundation stone. And by being built into that stone, we now share in the presence of God. John sees no court divisions, as in the earthly temple, which segregated the Gentiles from Israel, the men from the women, and the priests from the rest of the men. In heaven, all are given equal access to the holy presence of God. And are we not called to live heaven here on earth? Remember that the word Catholic simply means universal, my friends. And we believe as Catholics that God came to establish a universal covenant. And the signs of that covenant are, yes, baptism, but also the Eucharist. Because it is in the Eucharist that we abide in the presence of God. Amen? Amen to that. All right. How about verses 17 to 21? He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by a man's measure, that is, an angel's. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Now, (laughs) you hear that, and certainly that can be a little confusing. John's language, if we're going to be honest, from time to time in this book, not that you need me to tell you this, is a little confusing. I mean, what does it mean that the measurement is that of a man that is an angel's. The phrase probably refers to the fact that though the temple is spiritual, the description of its length is given according to human standards so that the reader will understand. The precious stones that decorate the city are drawn from the account of the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus. If you were to go to Exodus chapter 28, verses 17 to 20, Exodus chapter 39, verses 10 to 13, you'll find the parallels there. We're not going to get into all of them now. 
but if you want to go back and read, please do. What else here? It is also overlaid in gold as the temple was. In this, the heavenly city's identity as a temple is made clear. In addition, many of these stones were also associated with the Garden of Eden, huh? The first sanctuary where Adam was called to be a priest king. So the heavenly Jerusalem is the place where God's people realize the calling of Adam, dwelling as a kingdom of priests in his presence. The connection between the heavenly city and the garden may also be seen in the fact that both the garden and the heavenly city are guarded by angels. And once again here, not surprisingly, there are how many stones? Twelve stones, in keeping with the number of the apostles and the tribes. Also significant here, in the Old Testament, the high priest was to wear a breastplate that contained twelve precious stones when he went into the Holy of Holies. This was to symbolize Israel's entrance into God's presence. You know, when you read just not Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but also Exodus, you really do encounter the richness and symbolism of the Old Testament priesthood. Huh? So here we are to understand that in the New Jerusalem, the church truly does and permanently resides in God's presence. And the all-important verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So as we have seen, the heavenly Jerusalem is described as one giant holy of holies. It is here where we should realize why all in the heavenly city dwell in the presence of the Lord, because He is the temple. The righteous dwell within the Lord God and Lamb, and in so doing, dwell in God's presence. What does it mean to live in God's presence? We are still in Christmas season, huh? And many of us are still feeling the warm fuzzies from December 25th, or maybe some of you are coming down from that high. Here we ought to appreciate the importance of December 25th, the importance of the incarnation, that it is indeed the revelation of the greatness of God's love, a love that we are called to share in, a love that we are called to encounter, a love that we are called to contemplate the deeper meaning of. I mean, why would God sneak behind enemy lines to be born in a manger, but to show us what it means to be fundamentally human? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, if we want to live in God's presence— we must first embrace this first beatitude because it is only when we are living in that permanent disposition, in that permanent state of being where we have our arms raised up like any child would have their arms raised up to their parent that we discover what it means to live in the presence of God. If you think you have it all figured out, if you think that you are the one in control, if you think that for a second you're the one who's running the show, Brothers and sisters, read and reread the first beatitude. Contemplate and recontemplate the nativity scene. Appreciate what is necessary for us to live in the love of God. To live in the love of God is to always be poor in Him. The moment you think that you are the one in control is the moment that you fail to be in control. Right? God is in control. We cooperate in His grace, 
We conform our actions to his will. We make hard decisions, yes, but we do so trusting in his providential care. Huh? Okay, so continuing our reflection with this verse, verse 22. The promise that the saints would dwell within the Lord himself was also proclaimed by the prophets. Isaiah predicted that he will become a sanctuary. The psalmist frequently refers to the Lord as a what? Refuge, huh? Psalm chapter 90 verse 1 says the Lord is a dwelling place. The new Jerusalem represents the fulfillment of God's promise that the righteous would abide in him, abide in his love. What is the Trinity? The Trinity is love given, love received, love shared. The Father eternally gives, the Son eternally receives, and the Holy Spirit eternally shares. That's the essence of the Trinity. So when Jesus Christ gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, he's giving us the gift of love and the gift of being able to share in his very presence, the gift of being able to abide in him. Again, this is what it's all about. Now, I just talked about the first beatitude and the importance of the first beatitude, being poor in God. But what else can we say here? How do the saints get there? How do they live in God? How does God become a sanctuary for them? How does God become their refuge? How do the saints abide in him? How is one made worthy to enter into the self-giving life of the blessed Trinity? But by pouring out one's own life in life-giving love. Could we not say that this ultimately is what it's all about? I know I hammered this home the other day that really in the end, the single most important vocation that is before every single Christian is to give glory to God. It was St. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, France, who once said, the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. I was hoping to get through all of chapter 21. That's okay, right? We're in no rush. Um, we'll just pick up here where we left off. These last, what, five verses, uh, verses 23 to 27, and then we will wrap up our study with chapter 22. And as we do wrap up our study, I will be sure to have Debbie Rosales with me next week as we continue our reflections into the richness of this book. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.